If your formative years were spent in the latter third of the 20th century, then you may be familiar with the work of Fred Rogers and his television neighborhood. But as simplistic as the program's message may have seemed, there were many complexities that lay hidden from public view. Did you know Fred Rogers once lobbied on the floor of the Senate? That the land of make-believe segments were often timely responses to real-world events? Or that cast members urged Rogers to add interracial couples and gay characters to the neighborhood? We'll explore all of that today, so hop aboard our podcast trolley, and then ride along with us into the land of Inside the Box. The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh yeah! Now I remember! It's Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Hello and welcome to Inside the Box. I must say it's a beautiful day here in the studio, primarily because I'm joined by my favorite podcast neighbors, Andrew J. Salvati and Jonathan Bollinger. Gentlemen, good day to you. Hey, Steve. It's a lovely day in the neighborhood, isn't it? Yeah. Hi, Steve. I'm glad you're bringing this up. Uh, something I haven't thought about in a while, but it's, uh, it's just a wonderful world uh, Rogers created, and it's fun to revisit. Well, today we're going to be discussing that long-running children's program, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I was one of those children that watched this program pretty regularly during my formative years, and one that I now find myself watching again with my young daughter. Rogers began doing children's programming in the 1950s on a program entitled The Children's Corner, and even hosted a program simply called Mr. Rogers, all one word, uh, for the Canadian Broadcasting Company for a short time. However, the program as we know it in the U.S. officially debuted in 1968 in black and white on NET, the National Education Television Network, as well as the Eastern Educational Network. The production belonged to public television station WQED in Pittsburgh until 1971 when Rogers created his own production company, Family Communications, today known as the Fred Rogers Company, which took over ownership rights to the neighborhood program from WQED. However, the program remained at QED with Rogers Company renting the necessary office and studio production space from the station. The show lasted until 2001, producing a total of 895 episodes, many of which can still be found on PBS stations across the country as well as on streaming media services. While Fred Rogers was an ordained Presbyterian minister, he very rarely made any reference to God in his program, instead focusing on the golden rule of reciprocity by loving oneself and loving thy neighbor. Sadly, Fred Rogers passed away in February 2003 at the age of 74. Presently, there is an animated spin-off program entitled Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood that currently airs on PBS. So Jonathan and Andrew, uh, do you guys have any recollection of this program from your youth? Did it play a role in your youth at all? Or can you share any personal opinions about this program? You know, I I kind of remember it only vaguely. I mean, I was in the sweet spot. I was, you know, watching PBS uh, in the early 1980s. So this certainly would have been my generation. Um, but I kind of remember, um, my, my mother and father may disagree with this, but I kind of remember being a little bit more of a... Um, 
preoccupied watcher of television, whether it was Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers or any of the shows on PBS at that time. I kind of remember always, you know, in a, while I was watching uh, the shows like drawing or, you know, creating something or running around or playing with my Star Wars figures or something like that. So um, when I was, you know, preparing for today's episode, I kind of, you know, thought about, you know, what do I remember from this show? And I actually have really hazy recollections. I don't remember anything, you know, in in particular other than the t- the famous time where Mr. Rogers visits the crayon factory, which I think is a fond uh, recollection for anybody who remembers the show. Um, and you know, I kind of vaguely remember, you know, the trolley and going to the land of make believe, and mm-hmm. um, you know, Fred Rogers coming in and you know putting his cardigan on and his and his uh, inside shoes, and then the the little model of the neighborhood in the beginning, which I loved because as a child we had a uh, a train set downstairs in our basement and I kind of you know imagine them as being part of the same quote unquote neighborhood mm, so um, yeah so other than that you know I'd actually have to probably go back and either watch the show uh, live or on YouTube or wherever else I could find it to really kind of get the memories uh, uh, kicking yeah and, and that's what's happened to me with my daughters I'm watching the show now as an adult and I, I can't say I remembered specific storylines but you start thinking What are the messages going on here? What's going on behind the scenes? How are they meticulously planning everything? Because if you watch the show, it seems very effortless. But you know that's not the way production works, right? So everything was uh, meticulously planned out. And in fact, um, the the book by Michael Long, uh, who wrote Peaceful Neighbor, really gets into the ideologies and a lot of the planning uh, that Fred Rogers put into the program. And, you know, he wasn't always on the same page with his staff members either. The staff members sometimes wanted to go really far with these storylines, and Fred Rogers wouldn't always do it. So yeah. I think that, that's something we can explore further, too. And I think uh, even if we were intensive readers at that age, any of the allegory that Michael Long is talking about in his book probably would have went over our heads. Oh, yeah, uh, unless, unless you were a uh, child genius, yeah. Steve. But, which <laughs> You, you may have been. I've heard you describe that way before. <laughs> uh, uh, by whom? <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess I'm kind of similar to Andrew in the sense of um, I didn't really watch a lot of Mr. Rogers. I don't have a vast archive in my mind of like, oh, yeah, all these great Mr. Rogers episodes, but definitely more of a Sesame Street person. But I, I think what I remember from this show is that he was just so calm and reassuring And the space, which we now understand is just this very simple set, that house or whatever you would call it, it just seems so safe. It seems so inviting. It seems so safe. And the the sweaters, obviously, it's his his symbol. It's his 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 behavior that everyone remembers. But I mean, it's a soft sweater, right? So it's like he's he's a kindly father, a kindly grandfather, or something like that. And I remember, and this is the part where I guess why I'm not, I wasn't a big uh, uh, Mister Rogers guy, was the actual old school hand puppets, the not not Muppet puppets, you know, the real puppets. Right. That freaked me out as a kid. I did <laughs> yeah, not enjoy. I did not enjoy them. But him. Like if that whole show, or enough, and if I had the attention span to sit there, because the other thing too, to be completely honest, I think some moments of that show were too quiet, too slow moving for my mm-hmm. sort of uh, uh, MTV, uh, you know, exposed to MTV too early, you know, rattled kind of brain. But I think if the show was mainly just him talking to you and sort of being around you and inviting you, I think I would have paid more attention without the puppets and the weirdness and all that. Hi, neighbor. I'm glad we're together again. Could you see what that little thing was that I brought in with me? I'll show it to you right now. It's an orange seed. Looks very small, doesn't it? 
Well, I'll go to the kitchen and show you what I'm going to do with this seed. Come with me. I will say I cheated a little bit recently because I knew we were going to be doing this. I, I looked up a few videos to, to get my brain uh, uh, going on YouTube. And somebody put together basically a, a two-part compilation of a uh, time in the early 70s when he had one of his son, real-life sons on mm-hmm. and they make paper hats together out of newspaper. And then my guess is the early to mid-1990s, he has the same son who's now an adult on the show with his uh, his own infant child. And so now it's Fred Rogers as grandfather uh, hmm. uh, uh, inviting both his son and grandchild in. And that I realize it's a long, long explanation. But the reason I bring this up is there's just a moment where Fred uh, sits down. His son is next to him. The infant, his grandson, is on the floor. And he has like a tr- I guess he has the trolley, the thing that goes up on that he always right. And the child is fascinated by that. And Fred, the producer, Fred, the television host, Fred, the grandfather, just sits there and watches the child fuss with it. He puts a blanket over it and he goes, let's see if we can do some peekaboo, if you like that. Mm-hmm. And of course, the child really wants the trolley. So the minute the trolley goes away under the blanket, oh, you know what happened? But it's just this quiet, sweet and the the, the good part of me says truly authentic, ideal moment. It's not just, well, this will be good TV. Haha, you know, right. I think it's a genuine moment. And and. That's the stuff that I remember of, of Mr. Rogers, and I think that's what's so appealing to it for me, even though I was never a big fan. I could tell you much more about Sesame Street and Henson and Muppets and all that jazz, but there's just something very dignified and authentic and inviting about um, Fred Rogers that I, I, I even would go so far as to say would still hold up even if he was operating in today's social media tabloid media ecosystem. I, we can talk, maybe talk about that another time, but I think I think people would still rally behind him because I, I I think there was an authenticity there, and I, I think that's what what part of the appeal was. Yeah, and it was a conscious decision too, right? Uh, Michael Long says so in his book that um, Rogers kind of didn't like the the fast paced, you know, yes. quick cuts of a lot of television, and maybe even particularly television uh, children's television that was out there. Oh, yeah. So yeah, it was a deliberate choice by him. But yeah, I mean, I still have, uh, Jonathan, I have the same kind of recollections. And, you know, when I've seen it later in life, you know, it, hold, it holds up that, you know, it's it's slow, it's deliberate. And, you know, that can work or it can and, not work. And, and I think we're, I'm stating the obvious here, but I think most children, unless, you know, you just happen to have super parents, I think the appeal of watching him on screen was you kind of wanted him to either be dad or granddad or a cool uncle or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like that was sort of a, and I'm no child psychologist. I don't know what children can understand at what ages, but if they can understand at that point, I think they, they sort of want to vicariously, you know, have that relationship mm-hmm. with him as a television host. Yeah. And I think, you know, drawing on what both of you said, there's a transparency and this genuineness because the reason his uh, he formed Family Communications was because WQED used him, I believe it, uh, Michael Long's book brings this up, on the side of a milk carton. So one day Rogers sees his picture on the milk carton advertising a product. And uh, WQED had used his likeness without asking him. And that's why he ripped the show away from WQED, mm. formed the Family Communications, and then just ended up renting the studio space. He did not want to endorse any products. Um, and he was very... Um, open and transparent about the fact it was a TV studio home. So there's episodes 
Um, and in, uh, me being in production, I love these. He walks off set and he says, here's my band. Here's mm. our studio lights. This is where you can see where the set begins and ends. And um, here's the model of the homes that we use yeah. in the opening shot. And, and so you realize that he is telling these children, this is what's real. This is what's not real. And um, having them think. And he even does a superheroes week where he, he talks to, um, I believe it's DC comic characters and, um, and Marvel characters about what's real and what's not. And it's, it's just really <laughs> fascinating because there he's got the Incredible Hulk. And he yeah, has right, the Incredible right. Hulk saying like, no, it's not good to get angry, right? It's like, how, how do you, how, right. how do you, you know, yeah. navigate this as a child to realize that you know it's a lot of it's pretend, and I think Rogers really wanted to make stu- make students of the children in the way that they could realize what was true and not. And, and one last point was he did work closely with child development at the University of Pittsburgh, so he had mentors that were teaching him and um, helping him formulate these. And you'll see their names in the credits. He's not doing this on his own. He's, he's really doing this methodically and through the study of child psychology. Mm. Yeah, I, and, and I think you, you bring up a wonderful point because, again, I'm, I'm no expert on Fred Rogers. It's just a little bit that, that, like Andrew was saying, we remember. But that idea of trusting the child, expecting a lot of the child, working on their level and saying, the goal here is not just to entertain the child, but then to really understand what's going on here. What am I presenting to them? And 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 the 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 sort of parody or example shown through parody, of course, is like the Family Guy episode where Stewie goes to the the children's, flies all the way to England for his favorite television show, and goes, "What do you mean? This is all fake. This isn't you know the person isn't what mm-hmm. she's supposed to be," and he's he's traumatized. And um, and and. We see that as well with some of the points Long brings up in his in his in his recent book, which is um, Fred in in later years really fights against the traumatization of children as he defines it based on his own experiences with his son, and also I think through what these examples Steve was just talking about, which is um, the kids can handle it, they can still enjoy the program, but I'm going to show you everything. This is my world isn't this artificial world. I mean it is, but I'll show you how it's done, and 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 it can be fun and creative to involve everyone and it can be fun and creative to think of silly things and made up situations and yeah i i just think i think there's a there's a lot of depth there just to maybe cap that off before uh steve segues but i think that level of trust that that rogers is displaying jonathan that you're talking about really fits in with his overarching philosophy which michael long mentions quite a few times which is that Rogers felt that people were inherently good, and to a certain extent, that comes from his ministry, from his you know religious background as a Presbyterian minister. Um, but I think that you know he, he's trying to encourage this world, uh, or you know, encourage the growth of children in which you know they trust each other and that they they see the fundamental good in each other. And I think these things all all fit together. He also wanted to bring consistency to children's lives, and so. Uh, he sent. He would send memos to PBS stations saying, "Please air our shows same time every day, so that we're relied upon." Like the stu- like children would would um, not have to worry about trying to find Mr. Rogers in different day parts and different times and whatnot. But that consistently, uh, week after week, month after month, children could rely upon him appearing on their TV screens. So he even, um, you know, wanted to make sure that uh, the children could find him. Uh, yeah, and and this this can be a question for another time, but you know, you 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 want to support his mission. I do. I I I think the reason he holds up year after year, even after he's been passed away now, I think like thirteen years or something. 
you're all for it. But then there's also the the academic in you that looks and says, is this the the pragmatic side of Fred Rogers as PBS, long-running PBS children's host, who does genuinely believe that, but he's also protecting his territory and saying, and again, that's not to take anything away from him or to say he was somehow, uh, 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 you know, showing some duplicity. But, you know, him writing a memo to all stations and saying, hey, I know I've been on the air for 20 years, but they need me. And I don't want you to change that dial or change my programming block. Like, they need me at whatever the time was every every time. So, so again, and that's not to lessen his mission, but you do wonder, like, how much of a veteran television producer and host was he at that point in the early 90s? Because this is, I'm not sure if you're referencing other times, but I know one of the times was during the first Gulf War in the early 90s, and he was like, let's not preempt this for more war coverage that children need, you know, children need consistency. Yeah. And I totally, <laughs> Steve can laugh at me, but I'll say this as the perfect expert non-parent about parenting. Right. <laughs> but from everything I've heard is, you know, and my own experiences as a child, from what I can remember, consistency is so important having that world. And this yeah. is, you know, you can pick, pick any, any example, right. Uh, uh, unexpected divorce, unexpected injury, unexpected whatever, whatever disrupts that child's everyday routine. Yet kids are tough and they're resilient, but that also goes a long way because you because that's all they know. So I do agree with Fred's argument there, which is like if they've all known me for three years now or something in their life at this hour and they seem to like it, you know, then let's not yeah. disrupt that. Yeah, but Jonathan, I think you bring up a really great point about Fred Rogers' interest in the program's interest because. I think as um, I, I do think he really honestly wanted to help children. I, I think there's a, such a sincerity in the show that I, I buy into Fred Rogers. But at the same time, it's a publicly funded show. So he's got to worry about where the public funding is going to be coming from. Right. And um, if you r- ruffle too many feathers or you, you try to uh, do what you think is right. And this is where Michael Long's book comes in. Um, so um, appropriately, appropriately yeah, uh-huh. is is that. How do you get your message across, a message of peace, let's say, during a wartime? So you're playing a countercultural, subversive role to what the government wants. And at the same time, the government is the one that's funding you. And you also have to think about what, so- what society is going to accept uh, in terms of maybe introducing a gay character, introducing an interracial couple, or even what Rogers actually did do, because he did neither of those. But um, he was really warming up to race relations before most of the country seemed to be embracing that, right? So, you know, he had to walk a very fine line, I think. And that, that's where, you know, if we can interview Michael Long, I think that would be a great, um, you know, look into really how much of a struggle this was for him to look for his well, best interest and then also look for the interests of the country. And, that, and that's, that's the crude sort of, sort of uh, breakdown here, right? Which is the three of us sitting here being who we are, we say he did the best he could. He was a pragmatic, right? He he was trying to get out a very sort of leftish leftish uh, message, and he did the best he could within the confines while also not um, destroying his own foundation, his own base right. of operations, right? But if we were other people, like the people who he, in his best of intentions, still nonetheless excluded, we would rightly say he never did enough. He just never did enough. Um, and he should have stuck his neck out a little more. So we just have to be sort of self-reflexive in that in that nature, which is I'm not necessarily sitting here and lauding him as a hero, but 
since his experience, other than uh, other than his, it seemed like he came from a somewhat comfortable background. I can't quite remember. Yeah, his family was wealthy. Um, he came from a very wealthy family. Right. As a so, child. other than that, I think he's he pretty much is my experience, which is white heterosexual male uh, with high education. So. Yeah, it seems it, it, it living in him broadcasting between was it sixty eight and ninety nine? Uh, sixty eight and two thousand two thousand one. That whole post war thing, I get it. I feel like yeah, he did what he could, but anyone else like his his uh, his cast member and the other folks who went, he didn't go far enough. His activist cast members uh, didn't go far enough. I can also see that point. So I just think it's it's a delicate line you have to walk here between. And this this could be just for a different discussion, which is. Uh, did he do as much as he could within the realistic confines of, of his little niche in Pittsburgh or was he hiding too much, you know, and, 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 and did he not take enough risks? But that's, you know, that could be a conversation for another time. But I think that's what, what people might, might be, uh, might be interested yeah. in. And, and if we get to talk to, to Michael Long, he might be able to, to, you know, uh, well, expound on that. No, I, I'll go ahead. Okay. Andrew, yeah. I was no, it's just you no, anyway. the, the sense that I got from reading the portions of Michael Long's book that I did, and it'll be helpful to have him on later so he can straighten me out if I'm wrong here. But I got the sense that some of his cast members and some of his friends who maybe would have pushed him to go a little bit further in terms of, uh, for example, uh, including an interracial um, couple as the uh, subject of a love story in the land of make believe, which I believe was one of the um, points of contention that uh, Francois. Clemens, Clemens um, um, brought up, and then um, having uh, gay characters uh, in the neighborhood too. I got the sense that those folks kind of wanted uh, Fred Rogers to go a little bit further, but there was no no dialogue, at least on Fred Rogers' part, as explaining why that might not be a great direction for the show. Either would it, you know, cause, you know, ruffle some feathers, Steve, as you say, among uh, conservative, uh, you know, Congress folk who, who wouldn't like that or conservative audience members. Um, but I kind of get the feeling that this is kind of one-sided, and I'm kind of wondering about that. Like, you know, his, his friends, his cast members, why don't you go further? And Rogers kind of politely defers or declines. Yeah, I think, well, uh, the, and there's some inscrutability there that I'm just, it, it just strikes as curious to me. Um, and I, you know, I also kind of wonder how visible Fred Rogers was. Um, I mean, we know he went uh, in front of Congress uh, a few times, uh, you know, to uh, protect or an advocacy of, of public broadcasting. Um, but did he feel like he was a larger target than maybe some of the executive producers of other public television shows that he couldn't really go out there and take those chances? Kind of getting to Jonathan's point, like, how much did he feel he could realistically do? Well, here's, and that brings up such a great point, though, because he he listens, but he doesn't do anything about it, right? right. So Francois in the in the book, um, Michael Long interviews Francois Clemens, and you get the sense that Rogers would always listen to someone's ideas, but right. then he wouldn't act, and you really wouldn't know why. If you shift from the interracial couple to the um, issue of a gay character in the neighborhood, Francois Clemens, who is an openly gay man, was seen in the 1970s in a Pittsburgh gay bar. So Fred Rogers gets wind of this, calls him into the office, and this is outlined in Michael Long's book. And he, he kind of coaches uh, Francois to say, you know, you can't be seen in this gay bar anymore. I support you, but I really think, but I think you should marry a woman and, and live publicly as a straight person because we can't have people find this out. And Clemens is very hurt by this. So what, you know, you, you wonder that that's going awfully far Right. To, to tell someone to really not only 
hide their lifestyle, but then to publicly show another lifestyle as far as marriage, that you just wonder, is that protecting the program or was that really Fred Rogers' belief? And, and, I, and I don't know if we'll ever be able to answer that, only, only to what Michael Long could possibly tell us through the archives he dug through. But For conservative lawmakers and is to some extent audiences, I think the, the argument recently, at, at least, I'm not a, a huge historian of, of public broadcasting, but recently it's been, well, you know, if public broadcasting is funded by taxpayer dollars, I, as a conservative or concerned parent, don't want to be funding anything that I don't necessarily agree with. Like, you know, if I'm, you know, not comfortable with having, you know, religious talk on air or, um, you know, an interracial couple or whatever it is. Um, that's kind of always been, or at least, you know, as far as I know recently, the uh, the argument that uh, conservatives would make. So I could see Fred Rogers kind of walking that line. I just, I kind of want to know more, you know? Yeah. And so, so this is, Steve, you outlined that beautifully. Um, this this is that tension, right? So the 2016 version of me wants to say, you know, and kind of like music fans used to kind of rake uh, rock singer Freddie Mercury over the coals, like, oh, you didn't do enough. Like, you never went out. You know, it's like, you know, whatever. So it's like you want to sit there. You didn't do enough. You didn't say enough. But then Andrew brings up the other good point, which is it's publicly funded and it would just take a letter. So if we if we look at and admittedly he's he was in the starting in the late 60s and really the 70s but if we we take a a very like oliver stone-esque lens to sort of the jfk you know uh, uh, uh 60s we can see the paranoia and the the smear jobs right so we can imagine this right so so let's say fred for whatever the reason went uh, went uh yeah clemens uh, we're going to have you be the character. You're going to have a conversation and we're either going to have an interracial romance or we're going to show you that uh, you're really good friends with your, your roommate, you know, whatever. And he does that. We could imagine a constituency letter writing campaign and then questions, questions about Fred Rogers. Boy, isn't and this is, you know, 73, 74, mm. 70, whatever, even up to 82 or something. Boy, Fred's a Fred's really effeminate. You know, boy, Fred is really, he's around a lot of children. I don't know. That's it, right? Yeah. And it could become a witch hunt very quickly. So so I, I, my guess, and again, this is folks who are, who've stayed with us through this discussion. I, I'm just purely an assumption on my part. I think Fred understood those stakes and he was trying not to destroy his own foundation, his own power base, so to speak, as a popular children's entertainer and his own belief in his own mission. Um, and so he never wanted to take those risks. Yeah, and I guess the same thing could be said for the interracial couple uh, in the land of make believe. Like, you know, um, in, in a certain sense, uh, among, you know, certain folks, that could be seen as sexual deviance of some kind. And then you factor in the, uh, the fact that he's talking to children on a children's show. I mean, Jonathan, like you said, maybe it just took one letter and that's it. Although I, I, I will say, and, and we can save this for another time, however Steve wants to, to do this, but the, the sections about his, his first couple episodes of his very, very overt anti-war messages – like that was a subject he was fine with, you know. Yeah. He, he has the make land of make believe go into a full scale war. They start manufacturing arms and parts. I mean, and he was like, "Well, this is bad. We don't yeah. want to do this." You I know, mean, well, so, we can talk about violence. We can't talk about sex. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. And I, I think you know he was pretty much a Quaker at heart because he was peace. Right. There was no retaliation in him that that war or uh, fighting back or any type of that um, violent conflict was never in the equation for him from what I've read it just never was an option for anything and so that was a very strong conviction on his right. part 
and 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 just because I don't know where else to throw it in on this episode, but but this is the thing about these kind of these kind of topics, which is there's such a need within ourselves, or maybe it's just me, but I think it's more people to want to know the truth about this guy, quote unquote, so that we can go, ah, you see, he had a he had a bad day on December seventeenth, nineteen eighty two, and and he really ripped into some guys. So see, he wasn't really what he said he preached, mm. and he was, and it's like we're so afraid that he's right. And we're so afraid that he actually did have the strength to do it that way that we we look for anything to diminish him. And and again, I just don't know where else to put that statement in this episode, but I think that's a huge component here. And and in certain ways, why I, I kind of don't want to know more about him in certain ways. And then in others, we of course, that's a natural curiosity of what did he did he really practice what he preached? But we get you know, we get into this with with all and we're really not getting off on this topic. I'll just say briefly as an example, but it's the whole, you know, Martin Luther King discussion. Right. Which is um, does the fact that he had a vice for women um, diminish uh, everything that he accomplished. Right. Um, but it's that sort of thing. Right. We have this need to sort of deconstruct these personalities and look for all these faults. But my personal opinion is because then it lets us off the hook of not having to try as hard, <laughs> not as to try as hard as, and, and do these things. But I, th- I think, uh, sorry, just no, Steve, okay. uh, before you go on, just to hit on Jonathan's point here, I think the, the uh, added dynamic here or the added desire to want to find faults with this guy is because he's on a children's show. I think the idea that, you know, he's speaking to children made some kind of... He's a moral figure. He, he's a moral figure. So, but, but, but even more so, the fact that he is, you know, making, you know, the service of children his life, maybe to some people that kind of adds an incentive to want to find something kind mm-hmm. of dubious about him. Um, I don't know. That's, that's just my, uh, no, my that, thought. No, no. Uh, but I think that that kind of adds a layer in that isn't necessarily there for Dr. King or right. anyone else. I, I think once you bring children into the dynamic, it, well, it becomes I, the, I, the, the stakes are a lot higher. Children, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, aren't children the most trusting uh, form of human life that by the time you're adult, you're pretty much taught distrust first and then and then the trust builds over time where children will just trust up front? I, I mean, I, I would just like to, to make a note here that the only current parent in this room is asking this question. I would think you were the expert on well, having an I actual human child in here. Me. I, I, I'm just, <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying. But well, but no, yeah, it's, children, it's, children it's, it's encouraging trusting. to a certain extent that he's having these reflexive yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> philosophical moments, if, right? If my daughter was trusting an adult that she didn't know, I'm certainly going to be scrutinizing over right. that adult no, what's no. going on, right? Yes. So, but that's that's me. That's jo- not the, the jo- child. Jokes aside, yes, children trust. <laughs> children trust. Adults are taught not to trust. Right? We become very cynical. We become uh, 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 looking to sort of hurt one another out of our own fears and our own anxieties and et cetera. That's my personal opinion. So yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and connecting it with Andrew's thought is, and I'm drawing this off of just some old relatives I remember having as a child who are of that generation. Yeah, I can't tell you the fear that people had about anybody who they thought was on the wrong side of things. And, oh, my God, if they were messing around with children. Mm-hmm. Oh, my mm-hmm. whatever. Sexual preference, uh, drugs, not drugs, blah, 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 drinking, any, whatever it was. Uh, yeah, the real anxiety there. Um, the, the, the interesting thing that I just, th- I just thought of, uh, slightly connected here, certainly to our own podcast, is 68 was when Fred Rogers debuted, mm-hmm. right? But we've also done, for laughs, admittedly, but we've also done episodes on this show of Dragnet 68, the quintessential law and order and fear-based 
Could you right. imagine that those two messages were existing on your television at the same time? Like one is the law and order and crew cuts yeah. and doing it the right way and and yeah, eyes in the back of your head, Mister, and all if that somebody stuff. Somebody hits you, you gotta hit back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing. And then on the other side, Fred Rogers, like you know, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's just let's right. just be equals here. But let's just talk. I, I don't. I, what I don't want to mitigate or skip over is Fred Rogers in the late '60s and early '70s. He had a black police officer in the land of make-believe that was actually um, Officer Clemens, Francois Clemens' right. role. So you have a, a black male as a police officer, and they do what the uh, Fred Rogers did a segment where it was like a wade-in. Um, he's on his porch. It's a hot summer day in the neighborhood, and he offers Officer Clemens to sit down next to him, take off his shoes, and put his feet in the wading pool with Rogers. And you get a camera shot of the black feet and the white feet, right? And so he's making a very big racial statement. So where Joe Friday is sort of hits you over the head with a lecture, mm -hmm. I think Rogers was much more subtle and not showing you that this was not normal, right? If you watch Fred Rogers, it wasn't as if he was trying to show you this is the right way to do it um, and, and not the way you know, but just to say this is the natural way to do it, that there should never be any questions about this. Um, and by the mid-'70s, in fact, the land of make-believe, um, the neighboring town, he had written a, uh, a script or a character of Mayor Maggie, who was an African-American mm -hmm. woman who's the mayor of this town, uh, and her assistant is a white male, Chuck Aber. So you, he did play with these racial dynamics, and he did do things, maybe for Jonathan and, and for others, not far enough. But, you know, then again, we, we get into the complications of holding the base of the, you know, of the show. And I think and the context there is interesting, too, which Michael Long points out and kind of... Uh, also brings us back to Jonathan's point about what else may or may not have been on your television in 68 or whenever, yeah. you know, the, the wait-in uh, was featured on Roger's show, which is all of the riots happening in yes. urban centers uh, in the country. So the idea of having Francois Clemens as a police officer, Michael Long makes this point specifically, is that, you know, we're going to show uh, an African-American man uh, in a, a as a figure of authority, yep. uh, as a figure of uh, law and order, but crucially one that didn't have a whistle, didn't have a billy club, didn't have a gun or mace or any of that stuff. So, you know, while there may have been this tension, like the, the figure of the police officer may not have cut well with certain people, here was this kind of redemptive yeah. figure in many different ways that Roger uh, and, Rogers brought on his and, show. And the wade-in specifically was talking back to the stories of segregated pools. Right. So he he was deliberately going, yeah, no, it's cool. We can share a body of water. There's no cootie. No. There's no right. racial cooties here. You know. Right. Right. Well, just think of even the mayor Maggie. It's not only the woman is the mayor, which in '75 that's got to be pretty um, pretty novel for people to see, but it's an African American female mm -hmm. who is the mayor of this town. So, um, you know, he 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 did make some attempts there, but it's. You know, it's hard to see how far he could go in some areas and, and not others or, or what the ramifications would have been if he really pushed the envelope and, and went all the way in, in certain aspects. Right. And, and this is where and I guess I'm showing and probably we all share this, you know, our, our sort of own interest in, in production and television production and and voyeuristically looking at, you know, this guy started his own. It wasn't super big, but it was a little empire within Pittsburgh based on everything that he had just created. Um you know, sort of looking at that and saying, did he, did he sit there and go, well, I'm not, I'm just not going to ruin this for myself. Like I've built a lot here and it took a lot yeah. to get where I'm going. And so I'm not going to risk it. And then the other part of that is as well is, um, is, is he allowed to change as he ages? Like, like would he have been more willing to give it up or risk more younger 
But then once he hits the 50s, the 60s, he kind of likes being Mr. Rogers and he kind of likes doing that. Does that change his way of, 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 you know, as far as making choices? Because no offense, although it sounds like he was from quite a wealthy background, so he probably wouldn't have been too bad eventually. You wonder, did he have a moment getting up at age 50 or 51 or something and going, my God, I don't know what I would do if I wasn't Mr. Rogers anymore. Like, like I have some theology training and I've been a public television host. You know what I mean? Now, maybe he knew exactly what he would do and he'd say, oh, of course I would teach and do this, blah, blah, blah. But you do wonder on a human individual level, who's also likes being on television, to be honest with you. He said, you know, this is not bad, and uh, and I don't really want to ruin this. Yeah. So. I, I would think the op, and I shouldn't say the opposite, but the argument to that point, if you're naive like me, would be that he really didn't want to be taken off the air for the sake of the children he was helping. So you have two sides to the I would point. love for that to be the reason. I, I it's, a really be- hope, it's a beautiful reason. I would it's hope a that's reason. the reason. And, and this is one of the few people in television, because television, typically, I don't trust too many people I see on TV these days um, from a critical perspective. But, um, you know, he's one that from more and more that you read, you, you people often say he was the same way off the air as he was on. So you would hope that it wasn't so much protecting the Rogers base as it was... If I'm off the air, who's who is serving these children with television? Because to me, I think the significance in his work is that he's really the first show to really connect with a viewer, not about one, two, three, ABC like Sesame Street, but about being a human being, right? Yeah, being yeah. a citizen and what that means to respecting one another. And I think that's why I think the message is so sincere and unique, because to, I don't know of any other program that really does this for children in that way about just how to behave towards one another and so but basically yeah it's this weird like it's this as strong as every other post-world war ii civic or civil message that we see anywhere else but stripped of all the nationalistic bs and and the -the over-the-topness and the joe friday stuff it really is like it's unique in that way like he's sitting there going like being a good neighbor and all these solid u.s values is super important and i'm going to teach it to you five days a week but it never comes across as like, and so get in lockstep and like get behind the neighbor. You know, like it's not that it's not that old Twilight Zone episode where people get into basically a neighborhood war with one another because they think there's a outsider, they think there's aliens landing, mm-hmm. and it's about yeah. paranoia. Yeah. That, right? It's never about that. And so I do find that unique and refreshing. But it's as strong a civics lesson as any mm-hmm. you'll find, but without the the ridiculousness yeah. of it. When I was a little boy and I would plant something in the ground, at first I thought it would grow very fast and I'd be able to see something come up in just a few minutes. But as I grew very slowly, I realized that plants grow very slowly too. So little by little, I learned to wait. And waiting is such an important thing to learn to do. Let's think of something to do while we're waiting, while we're waiting for something new to do. Let's try to think up a song while we're waiting that's liberating and will be true to you. Let's think of something to do. So, Steve, I got to say, I'm not much of a a fan of Mr. Rogers as far as, you know, it's not my go to as a children's programming, but I think almost anybody would pick any number one of his shows to really exemplify who he was. Do you agree with that? No, actually. um, Well, I can't disagree with them. There's plenty of (laughs) moments, so I can't say they're wrong. But uh, for me, 
the, the key moment that defines Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers in a nutshell, uh, is his testimony in 1969 when he appears on the floor of the U.S. Senate to lobby the Subcommittee on Communications for Financial Support of Public Television. Uh, and he's speaking here to the chairman of the committee, uh, John Pastore, uh, from Rhode Island. All right, Rogers, you got the floor. <laughs> Senator Pastore, this is a philosophical statement and would take about 10 minutes to read, so I'll not do that. Uh, one of the first things that a child learns in a healthy family is trust, and I trust what you have said that you will read this. It's very important to me. I care deeply about children. My first children... Will it make you happy if you read it? I'd just like to talk about it, if all it's right, all right. Okay. My first children's program was on WQED 15 years ago, and its budget was $30. Now, with the help of the Sears Roebuck Foundation and National Educational Television, as well as all of the affiliated stations, each station pays to show our program. It's a unique kind of funding in educational television. With this help, now our program has a budget of $6,000. It may sound like quite a difference, but $6,000 pays for less than two minutes of cartoons, two minutes of animated what I sometimes say, bombardment. I'm very much concerned, as I know you are, about what's being delivered to our children in this country. And I've worked in the field of child development for six years now, trying to understand the inner needs of children. We deal with such things as, as the inner drama of childhood. We don't have to bop somebody over the head to make him, to, to make drama on the screen. We deal with such things as getting a haircut or the feelings about brothers and sisters and the kind of anger that arises in simple family situations. And we speak to it constructively. How long a program is it? It's a I'm half hour every day. Most channels schedule it in the, in the noontime as well as in the evening. Uh, WETA here has scheduled it in the late afternoon. Could we get a copy of this so that we can see it? Maybe not today, but I'd like to see the program. I'd like very much for you I'd to like see I'd like to see the program itself, or any one of them, you see. We, we made a hundred programs for EEN, the Eastern Educational Network, and then when the money ran out, people in Boston and Pittsburgh and Chicago all came to the fore and said, we've got to have more of this neighborhood expression of care. And this is what, this is what I give. I give an expression of care every day to each child to help him realize that he is unique. I end the program by saying, You've made this day a special day by just your being you. There's no person in the whole world like you, and I like you just the way you are. 
And I feel that if we in public television can only make it clear that feelings are mentionable and manageable, we will have done a great service for mental health. Uh, I think that it's much more dramatic that two men could be working out their feelings of anger, much more dramatic than showing something of gunfire. I'm constantly concerned about what our children are seeing. And for 15 years I have tried in this country and Canada to present what I feel is a meaningful expression of care. Do you narrate it? I'm the host, yes. And I do all the puppets, and I write all the music, and I write all the scripts. Well, I'm supposed to be a pretty tough guy, and this is the first time I've had goosebumps for the last two days. <laughs> well, I'm grateful, not only for your goosebumps, but for your interest in, in our kind of communication. Could I tell you the words of one of the songs which I feel is very important? Yes. This has to do with that good feeling of control, which I feel that the children need to know is there. And it starts out, what do you do with the mad that you feel? And that first line came straight from a child. I work with children do doing puppets in, in very personal communication with small groups. What do you do with the mad that you feel? When you feel so mad, you could bite. When the whole wide world seems oh so wrong and nothing you do seems very right, what do you do? Do you punch a bag? Do you pound some clay or some dough? Do you round up friends for a game of tag or see how fast you go? It's great to be able to stop when you've planned a thing that's wrong and be able to do something else instead and think this song. I can stop when I want to, can stop when I wish, can stop, 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 any time. And what a good feeling to feel like this. And know that the feeling is really mine. Know that there's something deep inside that helps us become what we can. For a girl can be someday a lady, and a boy can be someday a man. I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. <clears throat> Looks like you just earned the twenty million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's the testimony. What do you think? I mean, I, I think I, I get a better sense of maybe what I might call Roger's formal conservatism when it comes to not wanting to push the envelope a little bit too far, like we've been talking about, you know, throughout this episode. Uh, I mean, it seems to me that he's he's really interested in creating a stable presence in children's lives, and that's the best way to serve them uh, by exploring different ways of communication between people who are different, uh, exploring the inherent goodness of all people. And I think if that is his approach, uh, it lends itself to you know a more a more modest approach. It lends itself to more incrementalism, not wanting to go too far for the time, at least as he saw it and he felt comfortable with. Right. Um, now, certainly, we can we can criticize him, and people have for not going too far, as we've mentioned, but. 
I kind of wonder if Fred Rogers was a robot and still alive today, if, you know, he kind of would have moved a little bit more with the times and been a little bit more inclusive um, to folks, you know, going forward with, you know, I, I guess this this term progressivism is, is kind of right. loaded in 2016, but if he would have become more incrementally progressive, um, you know, as, you know, he felt like, you know, the, the culture was, was turning that way a little bit or, um, you know, society was more willing to uh, accept what would have been a jarring or uncomfortable image back in, you know, the late 60s or, yeah. or through the I mean, mid-70s. I mean, he's part, the, he's part product of the time period. Yeah. But at the same time, he, he does some progressive things, as we mentioned. Um, but the the sincerity there, I think that, that speech, it's not only about Rogers, it's about television as a medium. Yeah. Right. What he's yeah. what he's doing with television um, that really strikes me, at least, um, and one of the reasons I like the speech. I think uh, uh, charlatan and a huckster. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. But but there's 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 of course he's drawing upon his experience both as a television host and as I believe he was a, a, a theology student. Right. Um, he knows how to preach. But I will say this is he's one of the most well spoken. Uh, and, and light on his feet that that he can that can be found. I think what's most interesting and about this. So so the the cynic, cynic in me says he's drawing upon all those tools in his tool belt, so to speak, and he's hit his audience the right way. And so his his audience is converted to his 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 ideology. That's a cynical way of of looking at it. I will say it would be nice to think that these hardened. And I don't know the senators too well in, in in this time period, but let's let's say he's fifty at least, sixty at that point, which would put him. You're, you're talking about Pastori. Pastori. Point, yeah. So I'm guessing he's at least uh, World War II generation or something. So my point is, it would be beautiful to think that this guy really's never had this talk before. He's really never known. He's just that old school, bury your emotions, have no no understanding of how to communicate, and just be tough. And bury it. And maybe this is the first guy who's ever really said, "Hey, <laughs> there's, it, right? there's a different way here, Senator." Depez. You know, and he went, "Wow, I'm having a moment here. That that's a beautiful thing." Um, the other thing, the the larger question for me, and again, I am in no way um, uh, qualified to answer this. Someone else is. I'm sure someone can can quote chapter and verse to me on this. But if you take a quote unquote humanistic approach, as Rogers is which is, I think, what he leans on um, for for any of his other deficiencies. Can you accept that that as a as a as a reliable effort or if you're coming from the theories of marginalized people within our country, um, is that a cop out? Meaning, hey, he was a humanist. He was fighting for everybody. Right. In the most genuine human ways. Right. I want you to be a better communicator, communicator. I want two human males who are currently the dominant majority, dominant uh, group in this country. Instead of bombing each other, instead of shooting each other, instead of knifing each other, instead of screaming at each other. I want you to learn honest communication. And that is through his song, you know, what to do when you're mad, blah, blah, blah. Or is that nonetheless a cop out that, um, really uh, doesn't get at some real divisions and real issues here. And you're, you're really still not speaking to a, a whole populace. Again, I'm not, I'm not qualified to answer that question of how a scholar of, of LGBT rights, et cetera, would, would approach that is humanism. You know, is that, 
is that valid or is that just another way of, of saying you're I, I'm co- I don't see color I'm colorblind well yeah it's your privilege not to see color blah, blah blah it's your privilege to say it's all human stuff um so again we, it gets us back into this territory but but I agree with you 100% Steve um in that moment in that six minutes he has a profound effect um that apparently funded him 20 you know to one really helped him 20 million and pbs in general and and that's that's an astonishing accomplishment accomplishment because it's really not too many people who can have that direct reaction with that hardened senate crowd to get what they to get what right. they want well, pastore mentions he's been there for two days and right and this is the first time in two days i have goosebumps and then just gives the money i mean that to me does the senate work like this i mean is that no, that's got to no, be I, such I, an anomaly right to right. how the process is usually and and, and, and the other thing too what's so amazing about this is that you actually have the audio well we have the audio of it this sounds like the sort of trumped up remembrance most people do, i.e. almost tall tales when remembering or recalling an event, right? Um, you know, and, and then the guy stood up and he only had to say three words and, and people just got up and applauded him. And, and the reality was the guy actually had, a, had to speak for 10 minutes and two out of the eight people actually right. clapped briefly. But it becomes a tall tale as you go through it. But on the audio clip there, we can hear that he... he uh, his words, of course, would be the same in the in the transcript, but it's not like he adopted a tough tone that got his point across. No, it's Fred Rogers as he's always been delivered. Um, he didn't compromise really in any way, and uh, we hear the applause in the crowd. We hear the tone in the senator's voice of, of of wanting to hear these things, and and it seems like a throwaway line. Well, we'd like to see those programs. I'm sure they say that at every hearing, right. but but the tone in his voice is he almost seems almost kind of yeah. interested. Um, <laughs> So yeah, so it, it's amazing that it, it, it's it's sort of like I don't know if you saw the uh, that they did a, two years ago I think like a sports documentary on Bo Jackson and they had like Chuck Klosterman talking all through it about how he's like he's a myth now right all the stories you know he outran everybody on the field and he jumped higher than anybody on the baseball field and he did and, and that's sort of what happens but here no the tape the tape tells a tale it's Fred Rogers for six minutes was absolutely had his best. And he converted everybody, and, and, and that, that's a quite an accomplishment. So, Tomorrow, tomorrow, we'll start the day tomorrow with a song or two. Tomorrow, tomorrow, we'll start the day tomorrow with a for you. Till then, I hope you're feeling happy. Till then, I hope your day is happy. So uh, any any closing thoughts before we wrap up this episode? Um, no, not not too much other than um, I, I kind of selfishly, I, I want there to be a new sort of Fred Rogers in today's 2016. And then the other part of me says there really could never be another uh, Fred Rogers. He seems so unique. Mate, I feel like today, if there were to be a uh, sequel to Fred Rogers, um you know, with, you know, today's kind of multimedia environment, I mean, we'd expect such a guy or, or woman to kind of build a brand and be on, you know, multiple platforms so that we can access them whenever we want to. And that really didn't seem like Fred's thing. You know, he kind of had his understated um, kind of mellow and, you know, methodical ministry. And that was that was his thing, as he said, he didn't he didn't go out to be an activist. I think today we'd almost kind of expect that of somebody in the same position. Um, you know, he, he didn't, you know, spin his show off into a series of movies, which I think right. we, we might expect as well. Yeah, like he's, he's neither activist nor uh, brand manager. 
you know, it's sort of like him and the far side guy. They're like the only people of such popularity and there's barely any merchandising uh, yeah. related yeah. to them. Yeah. But, at, you know, at the same time, though, Jonathan's point about multimedia, you know, Fred Rogers was very popular in the day of one way communication. Right. The, the, the television is who he communicated or the medium through which he communicated through to the viewer. Now with Twitter, Facebook, how many how many more Fred Rogers would be able to today a garner the audience that he was able to garner when there was only a handful of channels and then b be able to be active in responding now to this two-way communication we become so used to in this environment i, I don't know if if that type of um show of being able to talk to the viewer as an individual would, would work today or at least overwhelm him to the point where yeah. it would be difficult yeah to but i also think that you know we'd expect him not only to be on more accessible on more media platforms we'd also expect him to be in more social settings giving more speeches speeches um showing up maybe advising schools or you know community centers or that sort of thing too um maybe you know fred rogers uh 2016 would or would not do such a thing i'm not, I'm not really but, sure but i feel like the expectation would be out there oh yeah, yeah the expectation Absolutely. totally totally different but i i have to say i would i would love for him to be able to just do one segment on like the smartphone because you could tell that, you know, he I'm sure he'd say something like, you know, boy, isn't this a wonderful device to make us feel close and connected with the ones we love? Isn't that mm-hmm. a wonderful thing? However, you know, and then he'd say, like, you know, too much of this would probably not be, you know, yeah. so face to face or, or you know, if a friend's across a great distance and you can Skype with them, boy, isn't that, yeah. you know, isn't that a wonderful thing? And he'd just sort of boil it down to its essentials. And not, and like you said, he's a centrist in, a, in many ways. And he just sort of bring the bring it to yeah. the, the middle. But at the same time, I mean, if, if he was so steeped and trained in child psychology, I mean, we're hearing these days that it's probably best to limit if or, you know, if not completely exclude screens from, you know, under a certain age. So yeah. I wonder if, you know, maybe that would be his message would be to abstain from that sort of thing altogether. And say, you know, I'm not going to produce this kind of content because I don't think it would be serving, oh, serving y- yeah, I children. Agree 100%. I don't think you'd see him do any of the auxiliary yeah. content. I'm just saying in the old school 30-minute 12, nice if, yeah, I think okay. he would do a segment yes. where he'd teach kids about smartphones or, or he'd probably do it in the land of make-believe. Oh, the king needs to talk to the blah, blah, blah in the other kingdom. Mm. Oh, there's a magic mirror, but boy, yeah. too much of this magic mirror seems to be really stressing yeah, the could, king out. I could out. see the allegory you know? there. That, yeah, I think yeah, that would yeah. be, yeah. So I think he'd address. I don't think he'd run from it. But but you're right. I I, I couldn't imagine him. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Like Isn't tweeting, it nice tweets to see your friends. Nothing. And, and I mean, after reading <laughs> after reading Long's book, though, you almost find that that like what Andrew, what you just said, isn't it nice? That it, that really wasn't part of the program when you look at all the political ideologies behind the scenes and mm-hmm. the way he's tackling um, not only childhood fears um, but other issues that he sees. I think it may come off that way, and I think Hollywood kind of read it that way as well. But to me, I think there's just so much more depth beneath the surface, and and some of it you agree with, and some of it you don't. Um, but it it um, it certainly doesn't. Uh, show in the simplicity of the program and so you have to kind of dig around and find it and I I don't know if Rogers wanted it to show or um, if he wanted these ideologies hidden you know that's Mm. something that I think maybe Michael Long would Dr. Long would help us um, answer so all right well uh, we're out of time for this episode so I'd like to first of all thank all of you for taking the time to listen to Inside the Box we certainly appreciate it and you're welcome to find us online at tvhistorypod.com or check us out through social media on Facebook at Inside the Box. Andrew does a great job updating us every day on um, his, historical TV moments and um, 
and uh, news and events from around the media industry. And, and in uh, celebration of Black History Month this month, uh, we're posting uh, intros from all your favorite uh, majority uh, black uh, TV sitcoms and and shows from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So a uh, special feature all this month in February. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, so please reach out to us. Now for our podcast neighborhood of Andrew J. Salvati and Jonathan Bollinger, I'm Steve Voorhees. Gentlemen, thank you, and thanks for listening to Inside the Box. Until next time. It gives me a good feeling to be able to give things to you. You may not always like what I give you. That's all right, too. You don't have to always like what people give to you. But it gives me a good feeling when I think that you like to be with me. It's such a good feeling to know you're alive. It's such a happy feeling you're growing inside. And when you wake up ready to say, I think I'll make a snappy new day. It's such a good feeling, a very good feeling. The feeling you know that I'll be back when the day is new. And I'll have more ideas for you. And you'll have things you'll want to talk about. I will, too. You always make each day such a special day. You know how. By just your being you. Only one person in the whole world like you. That's you yourself. I'll be back next time. Bye-bye.